Let's uh, go ahead and get started. We'll take a look at your um, quote card I have for you. The elders this last year have been reading through this book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. How many of you have read that book before? Anybody? A few of you. Um, if you don't have this book, you need this book. It is, it is essential for Christian living. Um, it's one of those kinds of books outside the Bible that helps you to apply the gospel to your life. Um, and it's, uh, its premise is simple that um, all we are is for one another in the, in the body of Christ is we are instruments that he uses in his process of redeeming us. Yeah, so we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And its I think its subtitle is People in Need of Change Helping Others Change, something like that. Um, so, I mean, it's a very humble um, view of how to view yourself in, in your ministry to other people, that you're just somebody who's in need of change and you're just trying to help others change. Um, or as Tom says, I'm just one beggar trying to help the other find the bread. Right? So that's what it's really all about. Um, so he's he's writing about counselees, okay? The person that you'd be biblically trying to counsel, okay? It's it's not a hodgepodge of of psychology and Christian counseling. It's biblical counseling. That's a very specific term that you want to use. Biblical counseling it means that you're not a uh, integrationist. You're not integrating worldly ideas of of how to take care of problems with biblical ideas and how to take care of problems. He's a, a biblical um, counselor. But he's talking about the person that you'd be counseling. And this is us, guys. This describes me, this describes you, and this describes what we need. He says, for most counselees, their starting point is their own experience. Uh, and oftentimes, I mean, what else is there? I mean, you, you, you go through something, you experience, and that becomes your point of reference. You're mistreated, you're slighted, you're overlooked, you're sinned against, and that becomes your paradigm. That becomes the glasses that you put on and you begin to look at everything through the lens of that. That's what he says. Their starting point is their own experience. They tend to view all of life through the lens of their own personal history, assumptions, and desires. The interpretation they've made of their lives thus far will also color all future interpretations. So now somebody else starts to get close to you and you've been hurt and burned and sinned against and you begin to look at them through that lens. What are they going to do? Okay, you see, I mean, that's just an example of, of what can happen. All future interpretations are colored by it. It will even color the way they view scripture or they understand scripture. So now you look at scripture and it only means what your experience interprets it to mean. People who interpret life through the lens of their own experience will do the same with God's word. Personal experience, not scripture, control their view of the world. Such a person needs someone whose vantage point is different. Someone who starts with scripture and moves toward life. Scripture must become the basis for interpreting life and not vice versa. And so what he's calling for in this appendix at the back of his book is... He's calling us to uh, be to one another that objective vantage point where I can step into your life and I'm not colored by your experience. I haven't gone through what you've gone through and that doesn't weaken my ability to, to counsel you, to care for you, or vice versa, you with me. It's actually an advantage to you or to me 
because I'm not interpreting everything through what you went through. Do you understand? Guys, this is huge. Instead, I can do for you what maybe you haven't been able to do for yourself, or you can do for me what maybe I haven't been able to do for myself, and that is view my situation through Scripture. Does this make sense? You get it? This is why God was God put us into what is called the body of Christ. Because we need each other. We need each other. If it's left to me to be on my own and to be the captain of my own sanctification, oh my goodness, there's nothing but trouble coming. And for you. But you need to step into my life with your unique vantage point and help me see. I need to step into yours and help you see. And we can then begin to interpret our personal experience by scripture and not the other way around. Okay? You've got to read that book, guys. It's taken the elders a whole year to read through it as we meet regularly with our wives. And, and uh, it's a great book to read. And we also it's also a video series. Is that right? Yes. yes. And so even if you're in a small group, um, several of our small groups have gone through it. I have study guys for it as well. Study guys as well. So there you have it. It's a must-read book. If you're looking for something that would help you know how better to understand the gospel in your own life, but also, I mean, you really have a desire, and I would encourage this for all of you guys. If, if guys, if you have a desire to want to be of use by God in other people's lives, this book will help you a lot. You know, Paul Tripp is, a, is an excellent author. He's got several other books that are worth reading. There's a whole host of trips out there who are Ted Tripp, Paul Tripp. There's another trip too, I think. But um, Ted Tripp is the one who has written Shepherding a Child's Heart. They're brothers. Is that right? Yep. Brothers. In fact, Ted Tripp was supposed to be here this weekend in um, Mesa at our at, um, what's Cornerstone. Cornerstone Church. Not Chandler, but Cornerstone Mesa. In Mesa. And uh, he had two deaths, um, in one in his family and in the church. Come on, in, guys. Um, and so he had to count or postpone, and so he's actually coming next weekend. So any of you, were any of you planning to go that? Yeah. I hope that you're still able to. Um, but anyway, all right. With that in mind, let's. Um, we this morning. I'm so excited for to look at this today. Uh, this is good stuff. This is a lot today. You can tell you have four pages worth. We're going to work through um, the deacon qualifications in First Timothy chapter three, and um, I'll tell you about everything else you got in your packet in a minute. So why don't you go ahead and let's um, let's do this. Let's open to Acts six. As a reminder from our time together last time, Acts 6, verses 1 to 7, and then we'll turn from there and make our way towards 1 Timothy 3, okay? But, not because it's tradition, not because it's a mindless habit, but because uh, of a very intentional reason, let's pray before we look at God's Word, right? I hope you guys do that before you open the Bible yourself. And as you have your Bible open in a reading, and then when you close your Bible, pray. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, thanks for this new day. Thank you for Saturdays and just what they are. Thank you for these Saturdays uh, being together. And I pray that you would meet with us and that you would um, draw near to us as we have your word open and that you would be pleased and glorified by this time together. We rely upon you to um, guide each one of us, to guide me, 
to guide my brothers as they receive your word. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, change us, that your word would speak powerfully into our lives. Uh, I know just how challenging it's been to look at these qualifications again and see where I need to press on more so and tighten up and wake up in some cases. And I pray that you would do the same with my, my friends and and that, Lord, your grace would drive us in this. Um, we cannot do this. You, you have not saved us by grace and then left us to our own works to try to polish up our lives. What we, what you begun in us with your spirit, uh, we can only complete by your spirit and your grace. And so as we look at this list of qualifications, help us to not lose heart about what we think we're capable of doing ourselves. We are incapable of doing anything ourselves. Help us to be dependent upon you and to lean upon your grace and the power of the gospel still at work in us to shape us, transform us, make us more like Christ. So Lord, we commit our time to you. We depend upon you completely and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> We're going to look at the qualifications as I said. <clears throat> Number one on your paper. I have four, I think four different sections. And next time I'm going to have five different, I'm going to chop it up a little differently. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> four different sections. The first one, just the greater context in which deacons sit. And this is primarily review. Um, remember, if Acts chapter 6 is a passage which is primarily a, um, a passage that's like a revealing prototypes, the apostles in Jerusalem in the church are basically functioning like elders of that first church, although they're not called elders. And the servants that they appoint to take care of the widows are functioning essentially as prototype deacons. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of watch from Acts towards, as Paul has begun to minister and establish churches, and especially as he writes to Timothy, who is in Ephesus overseeing the church there, <clears throat> we're going to see that how this thought developed and, and grew. But let's remind ourselves with Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now, at this time, and that is a very pregnant statement, remember? Remember how we walked through Acts 1 to 5? At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, and they said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading as a result. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So the greater context that w in which we're talking about deacons is this. The body of Christ is advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. I think you have that as, as a bullet point there. Verse 1, the disciples were increasing in number. Verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. Luke is very intentional under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to put those bookmarks, uh, book, uh, what is that called, bookends on the passage, right? 
to, to emphasize it's growing, the gospel's advancing, the gospel's advancing, and let me tell you one thing that happened in the midst of that that helped it all. Servants were appointed. Another servant layer of leadership arose in the church to help take care of this. Now, I want to summarize with, with three statements here that are, I hope for you, no-brainers. Number one, all disciples are committed to the advancement of the gospel mission. We talked about that last time. All disciples are. If the word of God is a witness to Jesus Christ, remember this back in John 5? If the word of God witnesses to Jesus Christ, and if the Holy Spirit, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to come and he will reveal, he will take what is mine and disclose it to you or open it to you, reveal it to you, when the word of God gets inside us then and the Holy Spirit comes inside us to dwell, we become witnesses. And indeed, that's what Acts 1.8 says. Stay in Jerusalem until you have received power and you shall be my what? Witnesses. Identity. Guys, you shall be this, Jesus says. This is what you will become. This is your identity. Don't lose this. All Christians are witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, testifying of the gospel. Everybody's committed to this. Okay. Secondly, we saw last week that the apostles or like prototype elders were committed to the advancement of the gospel. In fact, who was leading the advancement of the gospel in Jerusalem? Peter was. He was out on the front and he was getting beaten for it and he was getting persecuted for it. So the, the elders are to be personally committed to this. So you have all disciples are committed to this. Elders are committed to this. And what we found out also is that the deacons were committed to this. Okay? There is not one specific group in the church that is primarily evangelists or missions-minded people. The church total is a mission-minded people, a gospel mission-minded people, because that's what God makes us, right? Nobody is outside of it. Now, our experience in the American church might make us think that, but Scripture didn't lead us to think that about ourselves or the church. That's why we don't want to interpret our personal experience. Let that become the grid through which we see everything. We want Scripture to come and speak afresh to us. So deacons were committed to this. How do you know that? Well, it says that doing just what they were doing, the gospel advanced. And what do we know about two of the guys that were specifically next referenced? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen gave his life testifying. And when he died, what happened to the church in Jerusalem? Boom. Launched. And who was the one that's picked up next, talked about, who went out Speaking the gospel, Philip. And by the end of Acts, when Paul is, or not the end, but towards the end, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. He stops in Samaria, and he goes to the house of Philip the Evangelist. No surprise there. Okay, So he was probably specifically and specially gifted for such evangelism. But the point is deacons are of the same caliber. Okay? So even as they serve widows, they're serving, they're, they're making sure that bread gets from over there to right there. They're gospel mission-minded bread servers. Okay? Or chair stackers. Or worship leaders. Or children's ministry people. Or whatever. Okay? Now, let, let's clarify then about what one thing that came into my mind um, that you should notice from Acts 6. Deacon, the office of deacon, 
was met, not brought up in Acts 6 to create a stair step to elderhood. It's not that Peter and the guy said, you know, we need to help men become elders, and so let's create an intermediate step in which a guy can take a step, and then once he gets there, he's halfway to elder. Now, there may be some logical things about having being qualified as a deacon might mean that you might be pretty close to being qualified as an elder, but that is not the purpose for which the deacon office originated and became uh, and came into place. It was there for its own sake in the gospel mission. Deacons are not a spare step position for elderhood. Okay? And you don't see anything like that in, in the teaching of Paul as well. So, now, think about this. Would you, we talked about these three groups committed to the gospel, all disciples, all Christians, elders, number two, and deacons, number three. Would you, how would you feel, let's say God moved you, you were going to a church, looking at a church, how would you feel if you're talking with the leadership and they said, oh, yeah, the gospel mission, um, our people, the Christians, they're not concerned about that. Would, would that bother you? Oh my goodness. Okay, um, and so what if you went to a church and they didn't have elders committed to the gospel mission? Would that be a concern to you? Yeah. What if you went to a church and they didn't have deacons? How many of you have been to a church that didn't have deacons? What? How do you explain the inconsistency? Didn't our church not have deacons until about two months ago? That's exactly the point. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, and I do not say to you this example because uh, we're not guilty of it. We have been working on this for quite a while to, to get to, to solve this, to make sure that we are, are not falling into the trap of what is so easy. It seems to be, look, we know that a church is nothing if it doesn't have Christians. We know a church is really nothing if it doesn't have elders. Well, let's just put it this way. A church isn't very healthy if it doesn't have Christians. A church isn't very healthy if it doesn't have elders. But why is it okay for a church to do what it does but not have deacons? Does scripture lead us to that conclusion? No. Our experience does. And this is why the elders are on making the, the journey that we're making to try to make sure that we have deacon qualified men serving. Yeah, the, Why do you think that is? I think there has been so. Here's my own answer, and I don't know how true this is. Here's what I think. I think churches over over years and decades and maybe even centuries have so screwed up what deacons are, and they become so controversial that a church just goes, look, a guy leaders can come and say, you know, at the last church I was at, deacons, I mean, they ran the church into the ground. We're not doing deacons here. Well, and then and it doesn't cross their mind that well maybe they just did deacons wrong. You know, so I think it's. I think a lot of it is is there's confusion about the office. I think there's confusion about how and what they're there for. How do they function? What what relationship do they have with the elders? In many churches, they function as elders, mm-hmm. and that's just confusing. Um, and so I just I, I think what confuses us, we tend to go. I can either do one of two things. I can try to fight through the confusion and understand it, or I can just let it go. And it's just a lot easier to let stuff like that go. So that's my only thing. But. All right, so the point is, is we want to have a right view of the church. We want to have a right view of Christians in the church. We want to have a right view of elders within the church. And we want to have a right view of deacons in the church. 
And all three are committed solidly to the advancement of the gospel mission, locally and, as we'll see, globally, too. All right, let's move on to number two. Deacons. The importance of tested and approved character. Now, before we get to um, 1 Timothy 3, on your way, turn to Philippians chapter 1. This is during Paul's first imprisonment, and he wrote some letters. And one of them was to Philippians. And he says he's in jail, right? Verse 13, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. But notice what he says in verse 1. By that time, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, literally slaves of Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, including the Episcopos and the Diakonos. The elders, the overseers, actually, is the word overseer. Episcopos, scopos, like scopic, scopic, sight, being able to see, epi, a, a preposition on the front that says over. They have the ability to oversee, okay? And diakonos, the servants, the, 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 the table servants, the, the deacons. By this time, in Philippi, Paul, in his mission, had instructed the churches there needs to be these two layers of leadership in the church, okay? Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy is in Ephesus, verse 8. Um, actually, we'll start with verse 1. Timothy is in Ephesus. He's been left there by Paul to um, lead the church. And Paul's first letter to Timothy is to help him uh, know how to do all that. He's a young man, and he needs some encouragement, and he needs one of those kicks in the pants that only a dad-like figure can give him. And um, so that's part of what this is about. And in chapter 3 is mostly about these two layers of leadership in the church. Let's start with verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he, de- uh, he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, verse 1 and 2 started off with that specific word that is a title of an office, episkopos, overseer. Verse 8 now takes the other specific title of leadership, deacon. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Um, If you have NAS, it starts off, women must likewise be dignified. If you have any other version, it says their wives or something like that, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, Faithful in all things. 
Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so there's our passage. Now, the question that I want to start with by asking is not on your uh, first bullet point there, but I want to just have you think about this. Is this is some type of a spiritual character grid, right, in 1 Timothy 3? Is this a new idea introduced by Paul that has never been thought of before in regards to this servant layer of leadership? Now, do you remember in Acts 6? They were very concerned to make sure that there were some spiritual qualities in the men. So this is not a new idea. It began that way. But uh, verse verses 8 through 13 basically show us how the early church's thinking and conviction about that spiritual character evaluation of these servants grew so that it's become an actual list. Now, it's not meant to be a comprehensive list because, I mean, when would you stop? What would you not want these men to be qualified with? But there you have it. All right, now what I want you to notice first as we start is verse 10. Embedded in the middle of the list is a verse that kind of, in a sense, interrupts everything. And it's a very important um, verse, and it's what I have termed the tested character sandwich. Okay, There's, Paul uses this kind of stuff all over the place. He, he starts with a thought that's the top piece of bread. If you look at the end of the statement, there's another piece of bread, and they appear to be similar ideas, if not the same idea. And then in the middle, you got the meat, or the part of the sandwich, the heart of the sandwich. Now, notice what's on top. You've got little arrows, right? And I, I left you some room to, to write. These men must also first be tested. Bottom part, if they prove themselves blameless, or if they are beyond reproach. Those two ideas are similar. Let's talk about what it means to be tested, so you can write some of this down up on the top arrow. That means to be tested like metal to show the genuineness of the metal. Remember we talked about that? I think um, I think it was in here, didn't we? Or no, that was in that was in uh, Luke 22. We talked about I think being tested, perhaps. We talked about that here too. And we did it here too. Thank you. Yeah, it's that word dakimazo. It means to be tested, to be to show genuineness. You put the metal into the fire and you heat, or into a some type of a container. You heat it up, and all of the impurities come to the top, and the the blacksmith scrapes off the, the top, uh, all the dross that, that's not pure, and he keeps doing that until what? He can see his own reflection in the metal that's being liquid. It always carries the idea of once they've passed the test, then do this. It's, it's a positive testing. It doesn't mean every man's going to pass the test, but, it, but it's a positive idea that you test for the purpose of not destroying, you test for the purpose of revealing genuineness that's there. Okay? Um, the other word um, at the end of verse uh, 10, beyond reproach or blameless, um, that means that you cannot be arraigned like in a court of law. There can be no blame attached to you. You are unblameable. Now, who is ultimately unblameable? Any of us? Any man ever? No. So we're not talking about Jesus Christ, the only elder, the only deacon. Okay? There's, a, there, there's some degree of unblameableness that is possible among men. Okay? Uh, and then right in the middle, what does it say? Let them serve as deacons. Let them serve. 
Let them serve as deacons. If. So the leadership of the Ephesian church, Timothy, that means he was to have some kind of ability to observe these guys. Uh, he, he has some ability to be able to have seen them be tested by God. He has some ability to have watched them and say, I've watched this guy. He hasn't been, nobody's been able to blame him for of any character failing. He has some type of an observation relationship. That's a key phrase in my mind. An observation relationship exists for Timothy and these men. For the elders of the church in, in Ephesus and these men. The elders have some ability to observe their lives and say, beyond reproach, blameless, tested and proven to be genuine. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, there's some type of an observation relationship in which time and, and experience has tested them and revealed them to be above reproach. What it is not saying, this is very important, verse 10 is, is not saying, well, let them try the office of deacon for a while and let's see how it goes. It does not say that. What is it saying, verse 10? These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons. So in other words... They're just serving in the body. They're caring for the body. Stephen and Philip are just doing what they do in the body. And that was some type of a testing enough to watch these men of character to say, that guy's a must. Okay? And the church had no trouble picking those men out, um, at least at that time. But what does it mean to be beyond reproach a little bit more? Let's unpack that just a little bit. I want you to look at verse <clears throat> 2. An overseer must be above reproach. So here you have deacons and elders needing to have the same basic umbrella character qualification. This is a, um, a qualification that kind of stands over and puts all of the other qualifications in its shade. What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, all these other qualifications tell you what it means. You'll be a man of dignity. You'll be a man who's not double-tongued. You'll be a man who's this. You'll be a man who's not that. That's what it means to be above reproach. Um, this provides the specifics. Um, look at, um, I think you've got a quote there from John Calvin. Do you see it? And, and this is this is very good. And, I, and this is encouraging that back in you know 500 years ago, um, this wasn't you know this is a, a common idea at least in his mind. Those chosen should not be unknown. That's the point. They can't be unknown. How would, how, would you know, how would you be able to say this, verse 10, to somebody that you didn't know? You wouldn't be able to. Their integrity should be ascertained by all. This means this choice is not to fall at random and without selection on any that come to hand or mind. But those men are to be chosen who are approved by their past life in such a manner that, after what may be called full inquiry, they are ascertained to be well qualified. Does that make sense? It's so tempting when you are, when, when a church is like, let's, when this church went through a, 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 a real time of weakness and just being, it's just hurting, you, you still need to be able to do uh, children's ministry, set up, you, got, you still got to do so many things. It becomes so easy at that point to go, some guy comes along and he looks like he's got all kinds of energy and ability and he just loves, he'll do anything you ask and it's almost like deacon on the spot. 
because you are warm blood and you can do it and we didn't have you a week ago and we need to and it's so easy just to, on the spot appoint somebody to run something to oversee something to minister to people in whatever way without having first tested them so you have to as, as the leadership of the church has to make some really difficult decisions we either can do that and maybe get ourselves down the road into a whole heap of trouble or we'll hobble along and we'll keep an eye on the men. We'll do whatever we can to start to getting an observation relationship with the men in the church. And we'll do what we can. And this is one of the reasons why Build exists. Because we want to be able to get the elders closer to the men in the church to be able to say, here's what we think scripture says, here's what we think it says about leadership in the church and serving, etc. Yeah. What do you think of the idea, though, it, it seemed to be um, in Acts 6, didn't they don't didn't they appoint seven men and I won't say right away but right there and they already knew of them yeah. so yeah um, and the deacon I don't believe is appointed for life as we're taking elders are I'm sure they could we've said elders could take time off if they're for yeah, yeah. Well, they can be they can be removed from office if they're not qualified so what's right. the well, and it's a good point to wait enough time, and what is enough time, and can too much time go on? And I know one of your questions, I think, in our homework this last time was uh, um, the word was not taking our time, but uh, procrastinating too long and things, and it had to do with, I think, a question of, no, oh, I forget, but anyways. Okay. Yeah. How could procrastinating affect? The yeah, that's probably a little different what, um, than what we're talking about here. Um, in Acts 6, there was not this fully developed idea yet. So they may have had some elements of it that were different. But, you know, it might, it might not be different than what we're talking about here because, well, I've kind of messed up and put off some of my homework, so they're overlapping. But I know another question was something like, have you seen elders overworking and doing things and and I've seen elders waiting tables and maybe not doing things they should be doing, and there should be some yeah. worker guys. Yeah. But. Yeah. The, the, in the homework, the context for procrastination that I was getting at with you is what happens when one buddy on your team of serving wherever you serve procrastinates and they don't do their work? What impact does that make on the others who are serving? It makes a big impact, and that's different than waiting here to see if somebody has uh, tested, passed the test, and above approach. That's that's a different kind of waiting that's here. Um, um, I was trying, I was after something different, just for clarification's sake. And again, Acts 6 doesn't have in it everything that 1 Timothy 3 has yet, because the Spirit hadn't revealed it to Paul, and it hadn't been developed yet in the church. So they may not have waited but what they did do is they tested them, appoint seven men who are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Go look now. Now, how would they know that? How would they know a man was full of faith in the Holy Spirit? The body was given the responsibility of saying, I know that guy is. Well, how, would you, how do you know that? I've seen him. I've watched him. I've labored with him. I've watched what he does with people, with his family. I've seen this. And so there, there was some type of testing that went on. This sounds more formal than that. And it probably is more formal than that. But um, there was still a degree of waiting and watching, or uh, of, of just watching, 
not so much waiting. Um, this is why it's important for the elders to know the men of the church because there may be some crises that come up where you need servants not in three months but in three days. And you may need to be able to just say, from what we know, what we've seen about him and what we see in the character qualifications, he's got to do it now. Now, is there a risk in doing that versus taking him through a longer process and giving him the deacon application handbook and it takes him three months to fill it out because it takes that long just to fill it down? Yeah. But sometimes you got to do what you got to do in the process too. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, the point is observation relationship. There's got to be some ability to watch. Now, I want to take a minute. I want to talk to you about above reproach. Who in the church is supposed to be above reproach? <coughs> Who? Elders. Who? Who else? Deacons. Is that it? I'm sorry, what? Everyone. We're all supposed to aspire to that. Well, that's that's true. We encourage that, but there's nothing in Scripture that says make sure everybody aspires to these character qualifications in elder or deacon. We say that, but Scripture doesn't tell us that. We, we, we decide to say that. <laughs> Humbly so. God says be holy for I am holy. Okay. This is, this is a good point. Now, the, the point of this is that those same three categories, everybody is to be concerned with the, advancing the mission of the gospel. God wants all three of those categories to be above reproach in their character as they are a part of advancing his gospel mission. You say, how do you know that? Well, let's turn back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, verse 14. Philippians 2, verse 14. Paul, by the way, Paul has four different words, at least as far as I can tell, that he uses to describe this condition called blameless or above reproach. One of them is used in Paul's writings for all three different categories. At one point in one place he'll say Christians are to be above reproach. He'll use that same word to describe the deacons are to be above reproach. And in another place he describes elders are to be above reproach with that same one word. But all four words he uses for all Christians all the time. So in other words, his emphasis is mostly on just the Christian life as one that is to be above reproach. We are to be blameless. Look at Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves, here it is, to be what? Blameless. Now, who's he talking to? The church. Blameless and innocent children of God. Here, look at this. Above reproach. Emphasis. Two different words used in that verse. Above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as what? Witnesses, lights, testifiers. You see gospel mission, guys, be above reproach. Christian, your life must be above reproach. has to be. And great point that Dave brought up, Ephesians 1. He chose us to be in him from the foundation of the world that we might be what? Holy. Right. All right. Go to First uh, Thessalonians chapter three. Uh, let's look at verse eleven. Now, with our God and Father Himself and Jesus, our I'm sorry. Now, may our God and Father Himself and Jesus, our Lord, direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. 
so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and the Father and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So there again, Christians are to be without blame. It's the same type of word being used there. Uh, go to Col- go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Colossians 1, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, describing us before Christ came into our lives, right? Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Okay, there's the cross. Um, the gospel is what has reconciled you in order to present you before him, three words, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What's the purpose of the cross? What's the purpose of the cross? Holy, blameless, above reproach. Okay, all Christians. Let's talk about deacons. We know in 1 Timothy 3, go back there, just so you can see the word again, verse 8, or I'm sorry, verse 10. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Okay, so we know deacons are to be this way. Um, oh, I got two others. I, I skipped the line. Hold. T- uh, since you're in First Timothy, go to First Timothy chapter five, verse seven, and I'll look at the other one I missed, and I'll see if it's. Uh, I may read it to you, uh, and you can write it down. I want to really make sure that we spend the time emphasizing that all Christians are to be above reproach. All right, you, you hang on with 1 Timothy 5, 7. Let me, let me read to you. Uh, write down 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 8. I'll, I'll start at verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, important to understand there. Now, what does it say in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 7? Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Who's the they? Huh? I'll look at your context closely. Who? Ah, wait a minute here. Verse 3, the, the context shifts specifically to widows who are indeed widows. If any widow has children... Or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and make some return to their parents for this acceptable in the sight of God. In other words, a widow is first to be taken care of by her own family, if at all possible. Verse 5, now she who is a widow indeed, meaning no doubt that she's a widow, and who has been left alone, she's one who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, and she continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Uh, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they... Maybe above reproach. In other words, the widow that you're going to put on the list to take care of, she needs to be what? Above reproach. All of us are to be above reproach. None of us are to be unconcerned with that qualification of character. Deacons, as we said, we're supposed to. Now, um, go over to, um, we'll turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. We know what it says there. An overseer then must be above reproach. Right? You see that? Go uh, two books to the right to Titus chapter 1, verse 6, the other list for elders for the qualification. 
Uh, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach. And that, by the way, is the exact same word that is used for the deacons in chapter 3, verse 2 of 1 Timothy. Or verse 10 of 1 Timothy. So, you just see, look, there's the point. what's the point here? Um, all, there's this big pool of people who are just above reproach because that's what the gospel makes them into. Now, from that big pool of above reproach people, you're going to grab men who are going to fit these two different servant layers of leadership. And they must indeed be what that group says that the gospel makes them into. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. And what's the distinction of, is, there, is that a distinction without any difference? Well, I, I try to think of this. Look, um, here's an illustration. Uh, you, you've got an NBA team. All of them possess great skill. Many of them all possess the same skill. But you appoint one to be like the team captain or the team leader. Because why? Because he has the gift, or the, the abilities, and the others don't? No, but absolutely, positively, he has the ability. And the others know that from him, they can follow his leadership. So he has, in one sense... An ability that all the others have. But in another sense, he has an ability that's different than all the others. Um, and elders and deacons, all Christians have what the deacons and the elders are supposed to have. But in another sense, deacon and elders are leaders in those qualities. We Elders are to be men who lead in the quality of being above reproach. And the minute we can't lead in that, we shouldn't be elders anymore. Deacons are to be able to lead forward with that quality. They're leaders in that quality of being above reproach. And when they can't lead that way anymore, they shouldn't be deacons. That's the point. Okay? Any questions? Explain. You said the scripture before was holiness before you blameless and above reproach. Can you explain a little bit what the difference between those three are? Yeah, I, I don't think there's... I don't think Paul's point necessarily, like when he does that, when he throws like little lists out or... Uh, gets going and they tumble out. I don't think his point is to ex- do that to show all differences between the words, but I think it's it's, it's emphasis, he- a heaping on of terms to to show to make his grand point, and that is just overall purity of life, um, spotlessness, that kind of a thing. So um, one of them, the above reproach word, has kind of a at one point did, or maybe it still does. I'd have to look a little bit more. It had more, seemed to have more of like a legal sense, like in a court of law, you could not be arraigned. The other word, blameless, had more of a religious setting. And in fact, in the um, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the sacrifices were to be blameless, meaning without spot. You couldn't find a defect on them. And so you have kind of like a legal term, you have a religious term, and then you've got a holiness term. And, and Paul just kind of grabs all that and says, that's where you've got to be. Um, so I don't think he's necessarily trying to make huge distinctions between them. But um, let's Scott, go. yes, kind of on that same thought. I know in the NIV they will frequently use the term "without blemish" instead of the blameless. Yeah, that's probably the word "blameless" is my guess. Without blemish, because that would be the the sentence for sure. Okay. All right. Now, before we jump into the terms, let's take a break. Okay. Take a five-minute break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to run like a madman, okay? (coughs) 
All right. I want to, before we go on with the list, I want to do something that I think is necessary for my own heart, and I, I, wanna, I, I hope it's necessary for your heart. All of that talk about being above reproach and being blameless can make you do one of two, probably several things. Give up, go find a hole, crawl in it, and pull dirt over the top of it. Or your self-righteous flesh will say, I'm going to make a list of things I'm going to go do and not do so that I'll get that. And what do we have to remind ourselves? Facts of grace. Grace facts, grace statements, grace truths, grace realities, grace propositions. I want to remind you of Colossians 1, 21 and 22 again. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Fact. It's true. That describes me, what I was. Yet, he has now reconciled you. Fact. It's a grace truth. It's a grace reality. It's a grace fact. He did it in his fleshly body through death on the cross. In order to present you before him. Fact. This has nothing to do with you yet. You haven't done anything. Does it say anything about you? Fact. Does it say anything about me? To present you before him what? Holy. Blameless. And above, beyond reproach. Guys, when you look at your life, you are convinced that in an area you are not above reproach. And there will be many of those days that will come because you will see the wickedness of your own heart by the grace of God and through the word of God. You must come back to a, a passage like this and you must preach this grace reality to you because, and you must entrust your life to it because it is the only thing that has power. Your promises don't. I won't do that again. I promise to not do that again. I resolve that this will be what I'll do instead of that. And I'll surround my life with all kinds of accountability. You will eventually be led to, be, to make promises. You will eventually resolve to do things. You will eventually get to accountability, but not first and most, not first and most. First and most, you do what? You entrust yourself to the power of God in the gospel. And you preach this to yourself over and over. I read one of these as I was going through this again this morning. One of the qualities, character qualifications, jumped out at me for deacon and just smacked me in the face. I'm like, oh my goodness. And the way my flesh is and the way my pride is, is the first thing is, what do I have to do to make sure that this isn't seen for what it is? And I'll start doing this. And I was like, oh my goodness. The gospel. I've been united with Christ crucified. I have been united with Christ raised from the dead. Why? So that God might powerfully free me from the tyranny of where I've fallen. I am not under that slavery anymore. I'm not enslaved to that anymore. It's a fact. It's true. So that I might undoubtedly become a slave of God, a slave of righteousness, a slave of obedience. Preach the gospel to yourself. First and most, first and most, first and most. Okay? And out of that will come some really good promises. Grace-induced, grace-empowered, grace-sustained promises. And you will break those promises that you make. 
And when you break those promises that you make, you come back to the gospel and you preach to yourself first and most that gospel. Okay? Now let me give you reasons to preach the gospel to yourself. Number one, dignity. You must be a man of dignified character. Verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be men of dignity. <clears throat> this means, and i got some blanks for you to fill in, a serious bearing in life. A serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. Woven into this word, this Greek word, is the word mind. And so it's seriousness of mind that has worked itself out into character. It's just, this guy's serious-minded. He's sober-minded. There's a dignity to him. It's a seriousness of mind that leads to an outward character quality of seriousness. That means that it's observable. There's something to see. There's something appealing in this. It is a it is a qualification that makes somebody go, that's appealing. That, that man's a man of dignity. There's something dignified about him. There's something stately about him. It's a winsomeness uh, of dignity. It's not a, that guy is stiff and hard and can't get out of me. He's just, he's too serious. It's not that. It is a winsome digni- uh, dignity that the person has. Worthy of honor is the idea. What would be the opposite of this? Sometimes you can help yourself understand a qualification by talking about the opposite. The opposite of this is silliness. Being flippant. One who constantly makes light of serious things. We all have known guys like this, and we've all probably been guys like this. When I, before Christ in my life, and even at times, I have the ability to think of something, be talking about something serious, and I can inject the stupidest, smart-aleck comment at any time you ask. If you only knew what didn't come out of my mouth but was in my heart, I disqualify myself every time with something like this. But it's, that's what the idea was the opposite of it. <laughs> Silliness, just flippant, um, always making light of serious matters. The idea here is that doesn't mean that this, this quality, if you have it, is going to rob you of all joy, all happiness, and you can never smile. If that was the case, the quality would be called intensity. And I am gifted with this quality of intensity. And I am co- constantly finding myself, wait, 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 am I joyful? Dignity is different than that. It's not intensity. It's, it's just seriousness of mind that has worked itself out in the character. It's not coldness of heart. It's not coldness of mind. It's seriousness. Dignity. Scott? Yes? Uh, it has no relation, though, to knowing your destination and then sort of being, being resolved to get there, right? Like, it, it doesn't have that in it woven into its meaning, okay. but I would say that's probably somebody who's dignified would, would be like that. Okay. Yeah. So woven into the meaning, though, is mind, kind of that idea of mind, and what are the other... Uh, the, the, if, it's, if it's woven, the idea, because it has part of the word mind into it, it's yeah. not... Um, the, the word doesn't... Uh, the way that it has been used, it doesn't only refer to the way a man thinks. So I'm trying to, to say it starts with the mind, but it works itself out into his character and in the way that he lives. So that's why it says it's a serious bearing in life. The way that he lives, because of that seriousness of mind and character. Okay. So what you guys need to be watching for is, is watch your conversations. Take a little catalog of your conversations throughout the week and watch for dignity. Watch for um, your prayer life dignity in that, in the way that you think, in your attitudes, dignity, time. Sarcasm, but <laughs> under that, 
No, no, it's our couch is off. That's okay for Christians. Sarcasm can actually be, under the Spirit's use, very appropriate. I, it, unfortunately, it's used most of the time in my life for just to draw attention to me. <laughs> I think it can be. I think it would be very effective. I think you can see the writers of Scripture doing it at times, being very sarcastic. Um, I, think, I think Jesus was sarcastic. He had ability to use irony and sarcasm and things like that, but, um, yeah. Sarcasm can make you undignified very quickly. If your sarcasm is used to make light, that's a really important thing. All right, not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. Literally for this, the the word is dialogos. Two words. You've got two tongues. Now, um, (coughs) fill in the blank part. As notes are compared on the man's words, discrepancies do not become apparent. Discrepancies do not become apparent. Now, some think that this is just being a talebearer. He's a gossip. Um, but I think it's more than that. I think from what I've seen in the different commentaries that I've looked and as I've studied this, it, it appears that there, what, what is meant there is this man is consistent in what he says. He's got one story on the situation, not two. He's got one version of what he's talking about, not two. And... Um, he doesn't say one thing to one person and something different to another because he knows what that'll get him. Okay, he's not hypocritical in speech. He doesn't wear a mask. If you're going to be a hypocrite, you need a double tongue because you're going to put a mask on and you got to use your voice for the character of this guy, and then you're going to take that mask off, and then you can't use that same voice. It gives you away. So you got to talk a different way over here. So it goes with hypocrisy. These two things go together. Um, in a big way. Deacons, think about what deacons did. Think about that Acts 6 passage. Peter says, we can't go do this. We, we can't go serve tables. Um, there's people over here who need some serious shepherding. We are in the process over here of making sure the gospel keeps going in every direction it possibly can. We need a group to stand in between us and the people and make it happen. Deacons go and they're interacting with these people. What are they hearing all day? We don't give bread. And you know who's responsible for this? Blah, 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 blah. And here's why, blah, 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 blah. And then they come back over to the elders and they tell the elders. Deacons stand between two groups of people and it would be very easy for deacons to go to the people and have a mask on one way, come to the elders and put a mask on the other way. You need guys who are serving who have not two words, but they've got one version of the story and they're marked by that in their character. Does that make sense? It's got to be really godly men. And that takes a whole bunch of self-control. It takes spiritual maturity to do that. Okay? It's being sincere with your words. Here's how I'm guilty of violating this. <clears throat> I can be out with people and something happened that's disappointing or frustrating to me, whatever. And I will say, praise God. It's, you know, God is good. And then I get home and my wife hears a different story. And you wouldn't believe what happened today. I think that I need to work on that. There's one story, and there's only one audience. And it ain't my wife, and it ain't the people in front of me, it's God. Guys, we have one audience, and we have one tongue. There's one story, and we work on that, and that's what we say. We're not double-tongued. So, 
need to evaluate our content of speech, don't we? And how we portray things. I can portray things to you one way because I can manipulate you to what my flesh will do. And then I can go and tell other people who knew I was going to go talk to them and portray it another way. You guys have to be so careful. And again, we preach the gospel to ourselves because that's our only hope. Um, I can't stop my tongue. It's like a fire, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, not addicted to much wine. Verse 8. Men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine. Not addicted to much wine. Uh, here's your fill-in-the-blank. A repeated, habitual turning of thought to or use of alcohol. You say, well, yeah, that sounds... What do you mean by that? Very interesting. Start with the word repeated. It's present tense. It's a, it's a present tense participle that says continually turning to. A repeated, habitual turning to. So that's what the idea is. It's not that the guy drank once, abused it, and it's done. It's, it's a, an ongoing. He's marked by this ongoing thing. Okay? And in view of this is the idea of thought and how the man's thought and judgment is impacted by alcohol's effects because, it, this is the Greek side of it for you, because it, it's a, it, there's a dative with the verb, with the participle, and that means it turns into a thought. There's a, his mind is involved in this. He, his mind is continually turning to it. It's not just that he's got the addiction physiologically, but his mind has already been slipping there, falling to it all of the time. That's why I say it's a repeated habitual turning of thought to. Um, the best way that I can think of this is it is a person who has become preoccupied with alcohol. Preoccupied with it socially, what it does. Preoccupied with how it makes him feel. Preoccupied with its effects, the, the, what it makes him look like. What, maybe he likes the status he thinks it gives him because he's got the alcohol. He's become preoccupied with it. Wherever his thoughts go, it very quickly tips over to the, the ridge pole of the roof and it slides down to alcohol. In other words, the guy starts thinking all the time about how can, when's the next, how can I, is now a time where I could get, you know, just this constant thinking of dropping towards alcohol. That kind of person is not one who should serve, okay, um, as a deacon. The point here is um, is not drinking. The point is, is there a habitual thought dropping and preoccupation to it that manifests itself in, yeah, he drinks a lot. Not that he drinks, you know, a 12-pack every time he sits down, but he, he just seems to be drinking all the time. Why? Because his mind's preoccupied with it. He does it all the time. Now, I know um, several people who drink um, a glass of wine every night. And is that what we're talking about? I don't think so. It might be. Every situation needs to be looked at, doesn't it? So you don't come up with a rule that applies to all people. You take a look at each individual man. And when we go through the qualifications with somebody and elder qualifications, we talk about it. Do you drink? Well, yes, I do. Tell me about it. Why? Tell me about his drinking. I know what he said, but now you tell me. Okay? Um, yeah? Sorry. Um, is there a blanket statement for, for addiction in general? 
like, no, it could not be addicted to wine, but my mind could continually turn to any number of things, right? Yeah, and I have that next to talk about. <clears throat> okay, there's, uh, yeah, some people, when we've talked about this in the past, guys have said, well, you know, coffee, and I just say, shut up. <laughs> so does that solve it for you? Let <laughs> me make that clear. <laughs> Look, the the point here is <clears throat> there, there's a couple of things. You got the you got the addiction idea, a preoccupation of mind, and I don't want to use the word addiction like in in the sense that we think of it today, although it's not all that in the way that it's talked about. But there's this preoccupation with thought and mind and deed with it. And then it's just the, the subject itself. Paul uses the word wine. In fact, he puts a adverb in front or an adjective in front of it, much wine. Okay? Um, now, you want a man who understands that wine has an effect on him that's a little different than I'm addicted to sugar or I'm addicted to caffeine. Caffeine has an effect on you physiologically. There's no doubt about it. But let's be honest, guys. The, the impact that it makes on you is a little different than being addicted to the intoxication of, that alcohol brings. Okay? Right? So we can't just take wine out and substitute anything in there. I'm addicted to bananas. Oh, no. <laughs> because you can't. You just can't do that. However, not being preoccupied with something means that you, you, you may have a self-control issue, guys. Um, and so you, you want to hold both of these two things in tension together. We're, we are talking about one. We are talking about the effects of alcohol. We are. I would say the same thing would hold true for something like prescription drugs. I've got a little girl at home right now who had oral surgery yesterday to take an extra tooth out that's up in the roof of her mouth. And that little girl loves her coating. Today, she does. You know, if something were to happen to any one of us, we've all been there, back pain, whatever, and the next thing you know, your your mind's constantly falling. Where, how am I going to get the next worst? Is this an opportunity? Could I do that? You see it now. That kind of a person is not has just brought a blemish that makes you go, okay? But if somebody says, you know, I just, I, I, am, I, am, I cannot give up caffeine. I cannot give up my, my Coke. Um my Coca-Cola. Like <laughs> um, well, I'm, we're going to start with that a little differently, right? We're going we're to address that. But as a self-control issue. So we, we need to hold them in proper tension, okay? Does that make sense? Yes. Right. Not fond of sordid game, verse 8. Not addicted to much wine or fond of sordid game. It's one word. Love it in the Greek. It takes us one, two, three, four, five words to say the one word in Greek. It's not fond of sort of gain. It means loving the gain of wealth in such a way that causes my character to be questioned. There's your blank to fill in. Loving the gain of wealth in such a way that causes my character to be questioned. That means I would want material gain or monetary gain in and from a questionable motive. Okay, There's something questionable. There's a dishonesty about why I gained what I gained. I have a fond, and I'm fond of doing it that way. I like getting things in a way that is skeptical. That's really not a guy you want serving as a deacon. Uh, but think about this. <clears throat> Elders over here, big need over there, important need. 
making sure widows eat. I'm sure that involves some finances. <coughs> Not just coordinating who's going to do the baking, but maybe we got to buy the bread. Maybe we got to make sure that there's something going on that's needed there. Elders go, here's what came in last week. Go do it. Oh my. <coughs> need to be not fond of using that position as deacons go, <laughs> I think I can see profit coming here. That would be bad. And how many stories have we seen even in our own valley in the last couple years of people serving in the church, maybe not as deacons, but saw it as an opportunity to really gain financially. Not just by a couple thousand dollars, but even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. Not in this church, but it's really, well, we do have a thousand dollars now. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so we've got to be really careful about that, right? So what I would want you to think about is is how much attention are you giving to your spending habits in the little things? Cool. Little things. Guys, little things first. Little things first. Be very careful about how you spend your money on the little things. Start with that because if you don't, it'll grow if you go after things the wrong way. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, verse 9 you need to be holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Here's your, you know what, I, I, I think I changed mine. So I need to look and see what you've got. Make sure you've got the right blank. To yours says, a strong obedience to what is believed, which causes the conscience to affirm, not condemn the man or his ministry. Strong obedience to what is believed, which causes the conscience to affirm, not condemn the man. I changed that in mine, and I'll have to change it for the next time. But if you want, um, here's what mine says. An ever-present grasp on what is believed. I kind of took out a strong obedience to and just put an ever-present grasp because that's more of the idea of what's going on there. Um, And and obedience is obvious. I mean, you don't hold on to Scripture tightly and not obey it. But the idea bound up in the Word is an ever-present grasp. Your grasp doesn't let, you never let go. Um, the idea is keeping the, the idea in the verse nine of keeping hold of or holding to. That's a present tense um, verb, and so it is the idea of continually holding on to um, biblical conviction, or, or the, what is believed is the mystery of the faith part. Now, mystery in Scripture, especially in Paul, never refers to something that is not known. Okay, when we say it's a mystery today, what do we mean? can't know it. It's a mystery. That's not the way Paul used the word mystery. When he says, it's a mystery, he now means uh, it was once a a mystery that has now been revealed. For instance, the Gentiles coming into the body, that God would make a new man. He would no longer just draw Gentiles into Israel, but he was going to take Jewish believers, he was going to take Gentile believers, and he was going to make one new man called the church. Mystery revealed. Couldn't find that in the Old Testament. Exactly like that. Paul had that mystery revealed. And so when he says the mystery of the faith, he's talking about that idea that what was once hidden has now been revealed, and what reveals it is the faith, the content. Now, the word faith can be used in two different ways. It can be used as the idea of entrusting yourself to, or it can be used as content, the content of what we believe. We we have the Christian faith. The Christian doctrine, the Christian teaching about what it means to know God, to be saved, and whatnot. And that's Paul's idea here. The mystery that is the content of our faith called faith. 
um, the teachings of Christ, the teachings of the Christian religion or faith. Does that make sense? So the disciple, and I get this, here's the whole point, is you have an ever-present grasp on that. You have an ever-present grasp on the gospel, on what is believed by Christians. Then the word conscience is used. And your conscience does one of two things, Paul says. It either affirms you or it condemns you. And it all depends on how well informed your conscience is. Your job is to inform your conscience with scripture so that it appropriately so as a gift from God to you, your conscience is a gift from God, is so that it will condemn you, it will convict you, you will feel guilt for sin. That's a good thing. It is not a good thing as a Christian to stay in guilt, but your conscience is the one that says, guilt, guilt, and then you say, oh, gospel, repentance, faith. But your conscience is what makes your guilt come into play. So you then need to hold on to the faith in such a way that your conscience doesn't condemn you. It affirms you for what you're doing. Does this make sense? Okay. So feed it. And God will use it to help you keep on the path of sanctification. Um, Some have referred to your conscience as kind of like a window. You must constantly clean it so that light can come through it. Okay? Um, So that it can shed light from Scripture on your heart. If you don't constantly clean your conscience, it gets cluttered, it gets it, it gets impaired. It, it, ha- it cannot do what God intended it to do. Okay. So some questions for you: What role does the Word of God play in your life? Do you have a clear conscience about the way you approach God's Word? That's kind of the idea, guys. Do you have a clear conscience about the way you approach God's Word? Do you have a clear conscience about your motive for having come to God's Word? Do you have a clear conscience about the frequency with which you come to God's Word? Do you have a clear conscience about the level of doing that accompanies your going to the Word of God? Are you doing what the Word says? Deacons need to be men who, whose consciences affirm that, yes, I, I, I am holding to Scripture. I'm holding to the faith. Um, so, does that mean <laughs> deacons are not slouches, biblically or theologically? They, they need to be men who are, are concerned for these things. They, they, they hold on to it. That doesn't mean you've been to seminary. It doesn't mean that you... No, but you're 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 a, you're concerned about what Scripture says. You you hold to it. Husbands of one wife, a one woman man, literally, one woman man. That's what is is stated in in three twelve. Now we had, now you notice we went from verse nine and we jumped down to twelve for a minute. We're going to get to ten and eleven. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Now. This qualification is not so much um, about marriage. This is not saying the deacon must be married. It's saying that he is a one-woman man. There's only one woman in his life, and that one woman he has a mind and a heart and a thought and, and actions toward. Um, Say, so, well, how can a single guy have that? Well, if God's going to have him married, there will be only one woman, and right now he better be saving his heart and his mind and his thoughts and his actions for that one. So even single men are one woman man. And let me give you the flip side. A guy can be married to just one woman and not be a one woman man. Because yeah, he's got a wife, but his thoughts are with another. His, his dreams are with another. 
his time is with another. And yeah, he can even physically be with her too. One woman man is not just about having one wife versus being a polygamist. It's not about being single or you can't be a deacon until you're married. It's about having a heart and a mind and an affection and actions toward one woman, loyalty to one woman, husband of one wife. And if you'll notice, this is the same qualification for elders. Verse 2, the husband of one wife. It's important. Uh, good managers of their children in their own households. Here's the, um, your fill in the blank. Provides direct and ongoing oversight of children and household affairs. Provides direct and ongoing oversight of children and household affairs. The word manage has uh, the... Uh, Adjective in front of it, good. Good managers. The word manage means to stand before. There's proximity in mind. It's that there's something going on and the person is standing before it, in the presence of it, close to it. There's connection between the one who's overseeing and and what is being overseen or managed. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and you'll see the use of the word there by Paul. Now, let me um, draw your attention to something. This morning, have apart from Acts, we've only been within Paul. Why? Why is that important? Why would we restrict our, our study primarily to Paul? Our, our primary text is 1 Timothy 3, but when we've gone in other places, we've gone to Paul. Why? Because he established churches. Okay, because he established churches. Another reason I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm obviously, I want, I want you to get somewhere. With me. Why? Why is it important to stay with Paul? Why not go to Peter? The same context. Yeah, same context. What primarily is, is what does First Thessalonians and First Timothy have in common? Paul. We want to look at how Paul uses words and ideas and thoughts. When you study a, a book... If you have the ability to, you stay within that author first because he's going to be more consistent. You're going to learn from what how he uses words one place if you stay in context. Watch how he uses it in that context, and you can help draw conclusions. If I say, and I go with the way that Paul uses a word, and then I go run over and look at Peter or the author of Hebrews, it's not that I'm going to get error, but it's not as good as if I stay within Paul. You understand? From so a this, language standpoint. Yeah, from a language standpoint. Yeah, and plus, too, I mean, what uh, you mentioned, this is the same church planner, and we're reading a different one of his books to, to, or letters to, to get insight into that. First uh, Thessalonians 5, <clears throat> I want you to see this word, verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Would have been those early elders of, the, of their uh, church. Have charge over you. The idea here is direct oversight. Not ruling from afar, but the elders or even the deacons here are to be up close. To be up close to their family. They are managing their own household well. They have connection to their household, to their children and whatnot. To stand before them to rule to manage. I'm sorry, what? First Thessalonians 5.12 It's the same word. It's connection. It's not ruling from afar. You don't want a man, uh, and, and the same qualifications in the elders as there is in deacons. So again, deacons can't be a stair step to elder because a qualification for a deacon is the same as an elder. 
Okay? So you don't let them, you know, do that first and then watch for an audit. No, it's the same for both. And what you're looking for in an elder and a deacon is somebody who, uh, as a man, who is standing near his family. He's managing it. He's not off someplace else and he's left somebody else to manage. He manages it. He oversees. And it's a present tense, ongoing then, going on continually. This is the pattern of his life. And the whole point on this qualification, as it is with the elders, is that it's, it's from the lesser to the greater principle. You're watching how a man shepherds his little flock or takes care of his little family so that you can watch what he's going to be like in the bigger family. It's like being faithful in the little things so that you can be faithful in the bigger things. Okay? So, um, this qualification is important to understand too. This is not saying a deacon must have children. It's not what it says. It's saying if he does have children, you need to watch how he stands over his family. In fact, um, f- when, we, when we've done this before, um, we, we've talked about, a, um, we apply this, this, um, we apply this uh, qualification in 1 Timothy 3 to um, guys who haven't had kids. Tell me about how you're standing close to your household. Tell me how you're home. Wife, tell me about how much he's home. Tell me about what he's like when he is at home. Tell me what it's like when he's caring for you in your household. What then if they start having kids? Keep watching how he stands over his household. Keep watching. You keep watching. You keep watching. Um, and as a child arrives, as a child grows, you keep watching. And the, the, the safety valve on everything in qualifications is you have men who are committed to Scripture and not the good old boy club. If you've got the good old boy club, it doesn't matter what happens to a guy, he's always there. If you're committed to scripture, you help each other and you shepherd each other. We take care of each other. We love each other through it all. So it's very important. So the question you need to ask yourself now is how connected are you to the guidance over your children and the affairs of your house or your... Um, it would be a concern to me if... A, if not, not, it wouldn't be a deal breaker, but if a, if a single guy was like, you know what, yeah, I live there with these guys, but I really try not to be there. I would, I would want to address that. Um, not because uh, of anything, just then, if there's a pattern with that, I'd want, to, I'd want to ask some questions about, do you see where that might take you when you might have a home? What if things get tough when you've got a wife? What if things get tough when you've got to have kids? Let's make sure that that's not a pattern you're developing. Is all. I mean, so there's a reason to, to look at this um, from a number of angles. Okay. Any thoughts, comments, questions? You got it. Oh, I thought maybe you were going somewhere. All right. So good. All right. Number three. Deacons' wives. Uh oh. Here we go. Here we go. Right in the middle. Verse 11. Women, the NAS says, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Your version probably says deacons' wives, if it's not NAS. You have two choices here. There are two options for translation in verse uh, 11. You can either go with deacons' wives or the wives of deacons, same thing, or women in general. Just 
women in general. Now, here's what I want you to understand. You need to listen. Guys, if this, I want you to really tune in here and get this. Not because this is the crux of everything we believe, but because I want you to be able to explain it. If somebody says, why, don't, why doesn't Grace Bible Church, Church have deaconesses? I want you to be able to explain that. If you take it as deacons' wives, which we do, meaning the women who are being mentioned here are the wives of the deacons, like in verse 12, then by taking that position, you're saying there are not women deacons in the church called deaconesses. Okay? If you are on the other side and you say, no, it just means women in general, then the word, and, and the word certainly allows for that meaning, then what you mean by it is just women deacons are in the church. Deaconesses are in the church. Okay? Those women who would be serving, if you take that, it's just women in general, that means that they would not just be the wives of men who are deacons, but they would just be godly women in general in the church who are in, in that servant layer of leadership um, that complements what the elders do. Okay. Now, before we go any further, I want you to know that there are good men and great churches on both sides of this issue. Um, some who have deaconesses, John MacArthur's church, they have deaconesses. Um, I don't know. If, if, I'm, I'm guessing probably Piper's does too. I don't know. And then other churches don't. I don't know. But there's good men who are on both sides of this. Both positions can be defended biblically. Um, both positions have weaknesses that you have to live with. And sometimes it, it comes down to which position do you want to live, which weaknesses do you want to live with? Which ones can you live with better than the other one? Um, the elders of Grace Bible Church, we believe that wives of deacons is the best translation to take. Okay? So, and I'm about to give you six reasons why. Okay? Are you ready? Um, so that means, let me, before we, I give you the first one, that means then here we do not believe Paul is highlighting a third office. Because here's what you have to do if you believe it's deaconesses. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer then, first office. Verse 8, deacons likewise. Second office. Verse 11, Women likewise, third office mentioned. That's what it, we do not believe. That's what is being said. Okay. Instead, what we believe is that it's just the wives of the deacons. Okay. So why do we believe that? Because let's face it, that's not a very popular thing to believe. It'd be a whole lot easier to just say, "No, women serve in the servant layer leadership, just like men do, and they don't have to be wives." It'd be a whole lot easier. Um, be a lot less conflict. Um, but here's six reasons why. Um, number one, write down leadership title or office position. Leadership title or office position. Okay? You say, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> Paul does not use a third specific leadership title or office position. Overseer by this time is a specific Leadership title, office position. Deacon, by this time, is an official leadership position or office. The word women is not. And that is huge. Now, that's not a, that doesn't put the nail in the coffin for the position, but it is, it is important, very important. It's just a, it's a generic word for an adult woman. 
the word uh, there for wom- uh, women. And the generic words meaning they're just for women, it doesn't have to stretch at all to just mean women, because that's what it means. But if it's going to mean deaconesses, it's going to stretch a lot more. Is it just like the, the generic of guna in the Greek? It's guna. It's just women. And there is a female form of servant, but it's not used here. Okay? So that's important. Number two, write down the word placement of 311. Placement of 311. Where do we find 311 in this whole flow of chapter three? So, uh, huh? So on the qualifications for men? Yeah, it's, it's sandwiched, very interestingly, in the deacon qualifications. Now watch this. Verses eight to 10, Deacons, meaning the men, because it says, must be men of dignity, right? They're, that's what they are. Holding to the mystery of the faith. Verse 10, these men must also first be tested. And then look, drop down to verse 12. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. And then right in the middle is just this one sentence. So, okay, so the placement of it is very important. So it seems logically disjoint if Paul is introducing a third office if he meant deaconesses, it would have seemed more logical to let him finish deacon and then put it at the end or put it at the front, but not right in the middle. Now, is it possible that the Spirit of God could lead Paul to stop his thought in the middle and mention a new leadership title and then pick up? Of course. But it's, it's odd. It's odd. Okay. And I'm obviously biased. I'm not doing this very well in the sense that I could be this. Because yeah, I believe so strongly that it's hard for me to... So I apologize. Um, so if Paul wasn't finished with his thoughts about the deacons, why did he inject another office category before finishing the one of the deacons? However, think about it, though. If Paul means the wives of the deacons, it fits perfectly. You can totally understand why he would do that. Because verse 12 picks up with... Deacons must be husbands of that one wife, that one woman. Okay? Number three, historically. Or history. Historically, we do not find conclusive evidence for women deacons or deaconesses during New Testament times. There's nothing historically that has come up anywhere that has shown that there are, during New Testament times, the writing of the New Testament during that first century, there's nothing historically that shows that there were women deacons. The first positive identification of deaconesses in any church is found in the eastern churches of the Roman Empire dated at two, uh, AD 230. Now let me give you a hint of, of that. Um, well, let me give you a quote from Stroud. I don't think you guys have it, do you? Do you have a quote there? Okay, just listen. You don't have to write it down. He says, the beginnings of a feminine diaconate, you know, women deacons, deaconesses, are indeed hidden in shadow and darkness and difficult to perceive with any exactness, historically speaking. In other words, if you're going to try to go to history to justify that this is what they did, you're not going to find anything close to the New Testament time. Now, let me give you a hint. It's been roughly at the same period of time since our country was founded. Right? 200-some years. The fact that there are now TVs... This is absurd. Okay, This is an absurd, absurd illustration. The fact that there are now TVs to project back on the beginning 200 years ago that there were TVs then because there are TVs now, that's, that's foolish. So you have to be very careful because if you're going to say, well, look, by two, AD 230, there were deaconesses in churches around the Roman Empire on the eastern side. Great. They misinterpreted 1 Timothy 3, in my opinion. 
That doesn't mean that's how we're deaconesses back in Paul's time. So historically, we find no conclusive evidences for New Testament times. Number four, translations. Write down translations. The majority of the English translations go with wives rather than women or deaconesses. King James Version, NIV, ESV, the New English Bible, the New Translation, the Good News Bible, or today's English Version, all of those go with wives. My beloved NASB is the only translation <laughs> that goes with women. Um, and you know why they do? Because that's what the word means. And that's okay. But it doesn't help in this situation. You have to do a lot of explaining about what kind of women it is. Number five. Wives of de- uh, write down Paul's earlier teaching on women. Paul's earlier teaching on women. In particular, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul's earlier teaching on women in the church. 1 Timothy 2. Wives of deacons avoids any potential conflict with Paul's earlier teaching on women not being out in a position of authority over men in the church. That's chapter 2, verse 12. Since if they are the wives of deacons, they would be serving under the ministry of their husband. It would be under his headship. Now, obviously, um, the way that I numbered these, I tried to number them, but the most impressive and strongest arguments are one, and then two, and then three. Now it's starting to go lesser. Okay, So I will be more inclined to bloody myself on one of the hills at the beginning and less inclined to bloody myself on them towards the end. But I feel pretty strongly about all these hills. Number six, pattern. Write down pattern in Acts 6. Or pattern from Acts 6 to 1 Timothy 3. Pattern. The early church in Acts 6 decided... I get this. This is really interesting. The early church in Acts 6 decided to go with seven... What? Why? It was a ministry to women. The widows. If there was ever a time to establish how important it is for a woman to minister on the same level as a man in a servant layer leadership to other women in the church, that would have been a crucial opportunity. And the church didn't do it. They picked seven men full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And I think that established the pattern that the early church went with. So there's more reasons that you can find. Alexander Strauch has a book on, on deacons that is very helpful. He has a book on, on the elders that's very helpful. I actually don't agree with him on his position on deacons. Um, you know, but uh, he, he has done a lot of homework on it, and it's a very helpful book. So this means that in our deacon application process here at Grace Bible Church, I think you have this written down there, um, which a husband goes through, that means the wife also needs to have her character evaluated as well because of verse 11. Um, and if you want to dialogue about this, you can talk to any one of us. Let's do very quickly the women. Verse 11, they are not malicious gossips. You know what that word is? Diabolos. Diablo. Devil. You gotta say it that way. You can't say devil. Anyway. Slanderous accusations are not thrown at others. Slanderous accusations. There's your blank to fill in. Slanderous accusations. The devil is the slanderer, is he not? With a capital S. In gossip, many like to tell others anything bad that they found out. And think about the ministry again. You're moving around from house to house, feeding women, uh, widows their, their food. 
and you're hearing all kinds of talk that's going on, why is it important to not be a slanderer or to advance slander? Now, here's my question. I, I think I have it for you. Why is this addressed to women? It's not in the men's list. Why do women have to watch with the slander thing? Because for the same reason that you and I get in our list, we need to be one women men. And it's not in their list. Because God knows the male species and he knows the female species better than we do and he knows what's unique to us and he, women need to work with their tongues. We do too. And men need to work on lust. And so do women. But we lead uniquely in that, don't we? Okay? Genders have a unique temptation. Temperate, verse 11. They must be temperate Avoiding whatever might cloud and prevent clear-headed thinking. Whatever might cloud and prevent clear-headed thinking. This uh, this qualification is also found in verse 2 for the elders. See that word, um, where'd it go? Above reproach, husband and wife. Temperate. Oh, same word, temperate. I was thinking of sober-minded. It's the same word. So the elders have to be temperate. The deacon's wives have to be temperate. Clear-headed. That means sober, alert, watchful. Originally, the word had a, a, um, an initial tie uh, to the clouded thinking that alcohol brings, but the word kind of moved beyond that to just, you didn't refer to it when women weren't thinking clearly. Uh, you used it when women weren't thinking clearly, even though it might not have been alcohol the reason for it. Um, so it just kind of becomes a general, she needs to be able to, to, to think clearly, be temperate, to have control, to be alert, to be watchful with her thought life. And then lastly, faithful in all things. Uh, trustworthy in all matters entrusted to her. Trustworthy in all matters entrusted to her, whether they're great or small. Think about how reliability would be needed. Think about how honesty would be at a premium as you're serving in the body. Um, it's important for the wife to be faithful. Lastly, number four, the blessed results of faithfulness. Let's look at verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons, they obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, my statement is this. Deacons are highly respected and emboldened servants in the mission. Emboldened servants in the mission. That's, um, let me unpack this a little bit. They obtain for themselves a high standing, the NAS says. That means um, that they're highly respected. The word is like a... a a base, it's like a, a foundation, it's like a pedestal. They've attained for themselves foundational status. Boom! They've got foundation, there's, there's solidness to them. Um, and they have gained that for themselves, obviously by the grace of God. It's a present tense. They have continually been marked by people of, as a man who is serving in a solid way. And they've gained for themselves two things. Do you see it there? obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence. High standing and great confidence. We talked about the high standing already, or the good standing. The great confidence is literally assurance or boldness. They've, By what they've been and what they've demonstrated themselves to be, there is a, a growing boldness about them, which is why I really like John MacArthur's quote in his commentary. Those who serve God well and see his power and grace operative in their lives will be emboldened for even greater service. They'll be emboldened for even greater service. Now, think on this with me as we close, okay? 
from what we saw in Acts 6, especially what we saw in two out of the seven men, Stephen and Philip, okay? How can you not respect them? Huh. These guys are respectable men, right? And think about it. Serving widows as they did, can you not see how they were emboldened for even greater service? Putting bread in front of a, a precious woman in the church and maybe that same day later going out arguing with religious leadership of Jerusalem and dying under a pile of rocks. Wow. Mm. Faithful in the little things, emboldened to stand before enemies and not waver. Philip served food faithfully and he was emboldened by God's spirit when the time came to run from Jerusalem because of persecution. He was emboldened to run with the gospel. Wow. We need to really elevate our view of deacons, do we not? And because scripture does. I mean, this is a this is a wonderful, wonderful servant layer of leadership in the church. And only God makes deacons, just like only God makes elders. You can't you just don't go out and start saying, We're gonna buy next week we got we're gonna have ten of them. You gotta watch and you gotta and you guys, guys, listen, you we're putting this in front of you because we want you to be these kind of men if that's what God's plan is. We we can't make it happen in you. But we can we can lay this stuff out in front of you and say, now go go before God and pray about this, which is what I want to draw your attention to next. This thing right here that I gave you was um, a very weak and feeble attempt about three years ago to take the deacon qualifications found in First um, Timothy three and turn it into some type of a form in which you could prayerfully walk through these qualifications seven days a week. So that's why the first page says Monday. And there is like, and guys, please forgive me. This is like a a prayer that I kind of, I wrote. And I tried to, at the beginning and the end of it, you'll notice that the first three paragraphs are the same on each page. And the last paragraph is the same on each page because it's trying to capture summary things that are true kind of over the, 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 the qualifications. The main paragraph in the middle is the one that changes with the qualification. And so what I try to do there is I just try to come up with some way of explaining the qualification but in the form of a prayer where it helps you to talk with God about that qualification. God, make me into a man of dignity. Help me to be serious-minded and not flippant. Now, the whole point here is not that you pray my prayer that I wrote because it will be great offense if you do the point is, let it be a pattern for you, but, but start thinking how you can, on a daily basis, start praying through the qualifications for a deacon and let God do what God's going to do. Let him light you up for it. Okay? We want to just be intentional with the qualifications. Only God can do what God can do, but I want you guys to start praying through that. Let me run through your homework with you. You guys are massively... Um, able to endure a lot, but I don't want to go much further, and I don't have the homework in front of me. So I'm going to do that. <coughs> the green sheet, right? Yeah. Alright. What I'd like for you to do for, and by the way, first thing you need to write down is February 14th is Valentine's Day. Yes. 
Okay? So you all get up bright and early that day and you'll be faithful and loyal to your church first and then to your <laughs> Maybe I, I'm still thinking. You know what I'm thinking of, Ken? I know. You're like, why don't you just mention me? <laughs> because I have not been able to get out of my mind your one recommendation weeks ago about loving your life as Christ left the church. And I'm thinking about altering our schedule so that maybe that day we might actually talk about some practical ways in which that looks like. So, thank you. And I only basically work about a week at a time, and that's too far away from me to think. That's two weeks. Please read through the deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, your notes from our study on 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, and the deacon qualification daily prayer guide given to you. That's the thing I just gave you. Just read through those things. And then I want you, number one, for next time, to pick two deacon qualifications in which you see evidence of God's grace and growth in your life. Okay? Pick two. And be specific and write no less than one paragraph for each qualification. Here's what I see God doing in my life. Here's what I feel like I, you know, I, can, I can say that I see God working. And then I want you to pick two qualifications which scare you to death. I'm kidding. Two qualifications which you do not see the growth that you desire. Um, be specific and write no less than one paragraph for each one. Okay? I pulled out my file and the guys who did this three years ago and read some of them for the guys... It was so cool. The things that one of the guys, the first one he picked was um, that he really wanted to work on was a man of dignity, uh, because I think he saw in himself that he was kind of look, getting married is no excuse for tardiness, man. I don't know what you think. Of. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Derek Robinson. <laughs> With. 30 minutes left. <laughs> Did you only come to check your name off? No. <laughs> a bunch of guys are helping you with chairs. So. No, they're not. They're in building right now. <laughs> <laughs> but if you give me five minutes, they won't be in building anymore. You got to go five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Do, you got guys here helping you? Okay. Mm-hmm. We're, we're almost done. So. You're fine. You're fine. Well, thanks for the permission. Coach Banks. I'm Dave. Dave. Heard tons about you from I'm him. I'm and, sorry. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> they speak very highly of you. Pull up some chair. Come on in. Um, okay, oh, I was telling you about a guy who wrote down uh, in his that he wanted to be, he really wanted to work on becoming a man of dignity. And I know this guy. I'm, I'm close to this guy. And to see him today, uh, he, he has become that. Um He's really grown in the last several years. It's really been precious to watch that. All right, and so then um, set aside specific time to begin to start praying through um, that. You have a little sheet of your, your prayer guide there also. Okay, guys? Any questions or thoughts from... Boy, that, was a, that was like, step up to the, the fire hose and let's turn it on full bore, and it went everywhere. Yes? I have a question. Yeah. Um, hypothetically, if y'all were was a guy that was single... And um, was a deacon, and they decided to get married. How would y'all deal with that? As far as examining his wife and stuff like that. In other words, he was already a deacon. Yeah. Well, I mean, we would basically do the same thing with his, you know, fiance slash new wife or about to be wife or whatever. We would want her to be a part of the process mm-hmm. and um, sit with her and and have her um, think through her life from First Timothy three eleven. And uh, just do it like she would be, you know. If she's just a, if she's a girlfriend, I mean, I think we just want somebody to, and, and maybe you're not sure if you know marriage is 
how close it is in the future, I think we would just, it, and, and a guy was wanting to be a deacon, I mean, we would want to make sure there's a really good mentoring relationship in her life from an, an older woman, and uh, just shepherd to walk with him like we'd walk with anybody else. So, yeah. Jeff? Um, when you're talking about husband of one wife, I have yeah. a question, and then Please. kind of jump to the next one, but if, uh, well, in a church we were involved in a long time in Tucson, for elders or deacons, if the guy had been married <coughs> way back when he was in Vietnam, that was an example of a guy. He wasn't a Christian. He got divorced. They automatically disqualified that, no matter what the situation was. Um, what do you do with that? Yeah, what do you do with that? Situational. I um, without I don't want to put words in, in his mouth, but I think that's the position of John MacArthur too. That if a guy has had any um, divorce at any point anywhere in his life, he's technically not a one-woman man. Um, I don't. Did we work that out in our divorce and marriage thing, Tom? Do you remember? Uh, yes, and but I, I believe it would be two two things. One would be if it was before coming to Christ, and second would be the uh, the grounds of the divorce. Yeah. It, it's, so it's evaluated. It'd be one of those situations, I think, where we would want to look at every situation specifically <coughs> and not come up with a broad category saying, well, if he is in Christ as a new creature and it doesn't matter at all, um, that there's a degree in which that's true. There's also a degree, though, in which you look at it and there might be a nature of it and a remnant of it in the community that it just it would probably impact another qualification about not having a good reputation with those outside the church. And so you just would need to look at it carefully um, and see. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to make a, a steadfast rule. I, I know we haven't. I just couldn't remember if we had put anything specific about that. Um, yeah. Uh, another church I was involved with had the same thing. That if there was a, We didn't even consider men who had had any divorce anywhere in their past, whether they were Christian, pre-Christian, or pre-Christian or, or in Christ. How does that count that one? That was for deacons, and I'm assuming they'd be the same for elder. Because I remember a man came up for consideration, and we just said, no, he's been divorced. Why is there a distinction for that versus, I mean, every other qualification is present tense? Well, I, I think that's why you'd want to be um, look at it case by case and not make a rule for that one especially. I, that, that's what troubles me on some of these qualifications. Some of them seem to have such a weight to them beyond the others. And you know what? Look, I, there's no doubt about it. There's, there's weightiness... Tom, how do you, uh, there are sins to flee from, and there are sins in which, uh, not that you don't flee from all sin, you should, but, but you know, there are some that it's like, get away from it now, versus others that, in the, in the way they manifest themselves in their lives. When a man falls in, into a sin that he should have fleed from, that, that's, that's, that there's a, a sense of weightiness to that. But um, you, you just want to evaluate every situation, every circumstance, I think. You want to just, take it case by case because it, it, if you came up with a rule you'd probably violate your rule you know one after the other so that's a good question does that answer it for you yeah. any other thoughts and questions guys you Can know you have I, one? I, one comment Scott I uh, it, it's to walk in uh, humility because <coughs> some of the things we talked about today uh Different churches do things a little bit different, and to be humble mm-hmm. that 
we've got we've got it all figured out and others don't. You know, I there there are certain topics in divorce and remarriage, you know, you have John MacArthur here and you have John Piper way on the other side. And I'll tell you, I'm not gonna throw stones at either one of them walk humbly through this and try to understand uh, you know what it means for Grace Bible Church and I, and I know one of the uh, most unattractive things in our community with the churches is when we're picking apart other churches that love the gospel of Jesus Christ and it, it is a matter of humility that uh, you know just one beggar trying to help another beggar find the bread Everybody's and applying that to the deacon process. Every church goes about it a little differently, and they view it a little differently. And if you guys, you know, find yourself at different churches, which you most likely will throughout your life, you're uh, learn to live with each church, and it's like you're learning to live with our weaknesses and what we don't get right. Um, you know, just to add to well, my question. Um, related to the church I was in in Tucson and two of the most godly guys who if that hadn't been the case in their lives many years before they would have been elders but they still were church leaders they still were so active they were so humble that they submitted to that and said okay I'm going to go with that praise God so um, that's really cool I'm just looking at that yeah yeah, because I mean that—that's—that's that's what you're looking for. That's—that's a, that's a great example of the heart of somebody who wants to lead in the church, because they're not about the office, they're not about getting the standing, it's not about position, it's not about power that comes with position. It's just about—I I just love to serve, and I, if, if it's not as an elder, I'll serve any way possible. If it's not as a deacon, I'll serve any way possible. That's—that's that's what we're after, and um, that's what the gospel makes us into. It's not men who want position, but men who just want to serve. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a great point. It's a good spot for us to end. If you um, have some homework, you can uh, leave it on the table. But let's pray. And uh, thank you guys so much for your time. I would appreciate your prayers uh, for... Uh, this is one of those weeks where I am way behind. Mm-hmm. Shepherding matters in the church and things like that uh, occurred on a regular basis every day, which were great and wonderful. But Sundays are coming. And, uh, coming really fast. I need to pray. Uh, and pray for grace on my family um, that so that when I see them on Monday sometime, we'll uh, <laughs> remember who we are. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for what a what a great thought and subject for us to talk about today. Just uh, this important layer of leadership in the church called deacons. And Lord, I pray for these men that you would put it in their hearts according to your own um, plan and determination, um, a hunger for this qualification of life. And most of all, what we just said, Lord, that you'd put a hunger in their life for you and a hunger in their life just to serve however you desire. But Lord, I pray that they'd be holy and blameless and above reproach in this crooked generation we live in. Um, That where they are weak in their battle against sin, that your gospel would come and that they would be wise, Father, 
and participate with you by bringing the gospel, dragging their carcass before the gospel in the areas in which they're weak. Help me to do this more of my life every day so that we might apply the power of the gospel to sin in our life. And remember that you powerfully freed us from the tyranny of sin so that we might undoubtedly become slaves of God, righteousness, and obedience. You are great. You are kind. And we need you. And we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. And we pray for Derek today Mm. and for Pam. What a great day it is, Lord. We pray that you would go before them and help them get all the final last-minute things taken care of and give them great peace in their hearts as they... Lord willing, unite their lives together before you and before many witnesses. And may Jesus Christ be revealed to be the great God he is, the one who loved the church and gave up his life for her. Um, Help Derek to love Pam that way. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, Leave your homework on the table if you want. And uh, thanks for being here.